Welcome to On the Edge of Equity, where every episode features crucial conversations centered on equity, diversity, and inclusion. But this isn't just talking the talk. It's about inspiring action, asking tough questions, and getting honest answers, because that's the only way that real change happens. Welcome to another edition of On the Edge of Equity, a brand new podcast that is powered by Athena Communications, where we are having the crucial conversations that are centered around equity, diversity, and inclusion. So if you are ready to help us move our communities forward, to have the conversations that may make us feel uncomfortable, you have tuned into the right place. We appreciate you journeying, journeying with us to On the Edge of Equity. As with all of our podcasts, I am incredibly excited about our guest today, who I've recently connected with, but certainly she is a leader and uh, a person who's been tremendously dedicated to Milwaukee, Kenyatta Sinclair. Welcome to On the Edge of Equity. Thank you so much, Tammy, and thanks for having me here today. I'm excited about our conversation. I am as well. There are so many things that you and I have had conversations about, you know, outside of this podcast, but just want to introduce that you are the inaugural Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for the Greater Milwaukee Foundation, which is one of the agencies and organizations that I partner with and has been committed to doing that work. Talk a little bit about who you are, about your leadership and your role at the foundation. Well, I am born and raised in Milwaukee. And so Milwaukee is not just sort of a place where I work. It is where I've raised my family, where um, I have so many memories of neighborhoods and community and where I've created my beloved community. And so this work for me has always been a part of my path, maybe not formally in this role that is named now, but I've always had an affinity to what's good for folks, listening to folks' lived experiences and having folks listen to my lived experiences. And then based on those things, what do people need? And not trying to universalize <laughs> the approach because it sometimes seems easier. And so um, through my work at mostly in nonprofits, um, Next Door, Boys and Girls Clubs of Greater Milwaukee, WellPoint, and now at uh, Greater Milwaukee Foundation, I have had this affinity to people mm -hmm. and what do people need to thrive. And in business, what do people need in the workplace so that their experience reflects what they need to feel seen, valued, and heard mm -hmm. in a way that they do their best work. That is powerful. And I think what you have lifted in centering that experience, centering our lived experiences, but also creating those spaces that we can have the conversations and have the dialogues around what the lived experience, you know, should be or how we value that. When you think about the foundation really making racial equity its North Star, and you get to be a part of sort of this foundational work as the inaugural chief diversity and inclusion officer. Talk to us about what it means to be a part of an institution who has prioritized the equity conversation, but also, as you described, the work that needs to happen. It's exciting. It's daunting. It's 
sometimes exhausting and then it's exhilarating. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like all of those intersect pretty much in the same conversation <laughs> because uh, GMF is over 100 years old. Mm-hmm. Philanthropy as a sector is rooted in white supremacy. It's not the only system, you know, that's rooted in white supremacy. And so I'm excited by a challenge. I'm excited that I entered an organization that had already sort of declared the North Star to be racial equity and inclusion and had begun to do the work in what it does for community and what it does for staff and being able to take that baton and say, I don't, you know, I don't have to start from scratch, but there are some things that I feel like we need to dig deeper on. We need to lean in harder on and we need to apply pressure because we have been sort of a leader in so many other places that why not? Why wouldn't we be a person who goes first? I always tell people leaders go first. And sometimes at great cost, (laughs) but we also then show that, you know, we fail forward. And if we don't get it right, okay, that's okay. Who would have known that there was a blueprint on the way to do it if somebody didn't go first? And so I've been, my past 18 months there, I've been very much excited about what we have been able to do already and really trying to look into Internally, what does an inclusive culture look like? So we talk about racial equity and inclusion and people want to go right to the racial equity part. Without the inclusion, nobody's talking about racial equity because you have to see the person in their humanity first. We have to figure out how we get everybody engaged in a way when we think about equity, about what they need and not what we sort of think this macro um, approach is to the work. And so I tend to try to do a both and approach to almost everything that I do. And so as much as we're working on the racial equity piece internally and externally, I'm also looking at those things that impede our ability to be inclusive. Yes. Because if we're working on one part more than the other, we're going to lose sight of what the needs are of people to feel like they add value to the work and we don't do this work alone. And so I'm not trying to leave anybody by the wayside. And so I want to make sure that I'm always balancing the inclusivity piece with the work that we're doing around advancing racial equity. I love that you have lifted inclusion because inclusion is the culture. It is the place that we engage. It's where we do the work. Equity to me is the destination. That's the journey we're on to become more equitable within our organizations as a community, as a world. But the inclusion piece is really how we value each other, how we value lived experience, how we value the community of doing the work together. Talk about the inclusion and the work that you have been engaged in. So for me, the inclusion is the secret sauce. It's it's where we find out where we can folk, where we find out what we have in common, where we find out that we aren't so different and we don't have these monumental separate ways of looking and doing things. You don't get that if you don't take the time to focus on humanity, inclusion, people feeling seen, heard and valued beyond the performative ways in which 
just by the rush nature of our society, we tend to do. You know, I think about in a very small example how, you know, we often speak to people when we walk past, but you say, hi, how you doing? But before they can respond, you are now, you're gone. That's right. <laughs> you, know, so you have left no time you have left for no the time response. For any response. And, you know, I, and it's a small example, but it's a real example of, you know, you're like, well, dang, did they really even care right. <laughs> how I was doing? I, you know, I didn't get to tell you my toe was hurting or anything <laughs> like that. Because you're going on to the next. And so those are subtle ways. You know, I think about like those sort of slights in the same way I think about microaggressions. Mm. Like it's performative. We do it because it's the right thing to do. It's the polite thing to do. Yes. But we don't really show any interest either maliciously or just out of habit that we're really concerned about what's going on with folks. Maybe if you would have stayed to listen to the remaining of that response. That might have been a time for that person to say, you know, I really need support in X, Y, Z, because today is just a day that didn't start off well. Yes. So we're missing opportunities when we're not taking the time to be intentional in our approaches to inclusivity. This is why I wanted to have this conversation with you, because I think your approach to what the equity work looks like, and I'm careful because we often have titles that associate with a program, right? And you've just articulated like this positioning of performative versus intentional and impactful. Talk about more what performance looks like in terms of programs or initiatives versus the conversation about how we really move from transaction to transformational. Yeah, I would I would say performative looks like oh, we're going to lift up everything that we find on the internet about a checklist Mm -hmm. to say that, you know, we have representation. We're going and we are aggressively trying to hire folks of color. We're hiring more women. We're hiring more folks from the LTGTBQ plus population. But when we get these folks there, that's it. Like, (laughs) they're just there, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We're not doing anything, you know, around our orientation, our onboarding to sort of make them feel a part of the organization, nor are we really giving them a real slice of the pie or seat at the table where they're not just seated, but they also have a voice and that voice is then taken into real consideration. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's performative. It's performative when, you know, we only have a small group of folks and we tokenize them to say, see, look, when you see our pictures on the internet, we got diversity and things of that nature. When we do things where we want to, have people be quiet. Yes. So we <laughs> we almost like give them a carry, mm. right? And then you should be okay for the next two years. We really shouldn't hear anything else from you. I consider all those things symbolic change. They're not structural changes. Come on. So when we go from performative, mm-hmm. symbolic, mm-hmm. figurehead sort of stuff, optics sort of stuff, to real systemic and structural change, that's when I say we've crossed over into really doing the journey work. And that takes time for some organizations because if they started at zero, they really think they're cooking with grease. When they're doing their symbolic stuff. Right. And, you know, I don't want to sort of discount that. Right. Because for some people, if they weren't doing anything mm-hmm. at all, is a start. It's the start. But point. I am charged with not letting where I serve, where I work, where I influence mm-hmm. stay there. Yeah. 
You know, so we're not going to keep clapping for mm-hmm. something we did five years ago. That's right. We're going to cap. We got to dig deeper. We got to move forward. And then we got to look at what we've done. Is it sustainable? Does it impact? Does it take a brick away from systemic things that have been perpetuated that keep us in oppression, Absolutely. that keep us enslaved mentally, physically, socially, emotionally, economically? Mm-hmm. Those things I want, as we talk about dismantle, that's what I look at. I look at removing a brick, putting a new brick in versus some patchwork. Mm-hmm. You know, we both have lifted how Milwaukee is home for us. Mm-hmm. And there are narratives both locally and nationally about Milwaukee and the the issues and challenges that we have. You've been doing this work, as you've described, as part of the foundation, but also organizations. When you look at Milwaukee and its work around equity, talk to me about what are we doing well? Mm. I think there's a lot that we can talk about that we are not doing well, mm-hmm. just to your point around, you know, the performative versus the transformational and impactful. But what are we doing well? I want to lift up neighborhoods and I want to lift up groups of people who said we aren't waiting on government anymore. We aren't waiting on uh, organizations anymore. We're going to start organizing ourselves. We're going to start figuring out what it is we need to be impactful in our own spaces where we have influence, you know, hopefully while they get themselves together. Mm. But I've seen a lot really this summer Mm. around folks saying, we're going to come together and we're setting some beloved community rules. You know, we're not going to be fighting. We're not going to be arguing. Yes. We're going to uplift and find joy in what we're doing. We're going to support each other through opening up grocery stores in areas that previously, you know, there was a dearth mm-hmm. of fresh food available, fresh, affordable food available, healthy food available. We're going to lift those up in our community so our people can have an opportunity to have those same advantages as other neighborhoods do. We're going to start offering extended programming and extended hours to make sure that we're meeting a larger group of folks so that they can gather and know that there's hope. Mm-hmm. You can't do this work without hope. I think that there's a a movement in Milwaukee where people are more curious about what other folks are doing around joint sort of concerns that we have than I've seen ever before. People are not really interested in duplicating the work. How can we work together? And I'm seeing that more. And I would say that that's something I wanted to lift up about Milwaukee and how they do that well. Yeah, I think you are hitting on just the things that are critical is the power of collaboration in our community, the power of unity, the power of understanding that this work is really about not even the work, but life, (laughs) what it means to be in connection to another is really about how we engage together with our humanity. So much of what we've been wanting to do with this podcast is have the critical conversations about how do we engage deeper? How do we move it to where it is impactful? But how do we have I don't like to say courageous, but critical, crucial conversations to move change. You often call yourself a brave conversationalist. Talk to us about what that means. So my definition of bravery is 
where possible and where I have the capacity to temporarily, and I stress temporarily, sacrifice and psychological safety for the good of the collective. And so when I say I'm a brave conversationalist, I'm going to always show up to do my part in places where I know it's not always psychologically safe for me to speak up, but I know it may be way harder for somebody else to do Uh, so. Can you give us an example I will give you an example where power structures are, you know, inherent, even, you know, as I mentioned in our own in GMF and our own organizations where, you know, even though we're on this journey, there's still some clear structures. And even if it's unspoken, folks know who, you know, who the decision makers are. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. And so even speaking up to say, we know this exists. But we're also an organization to say we aspire to be an anti-racist organization. That means power shifting, sharing. That means representation in its realest form. Yes. <laughs> Not just bodies showing up. Um, and it means that we're going to look at policy structures and practices mm. that unfortunately may benefit some folks. Yes. And we're we're going to start to, to um, sort of look at those and pick them apart tear them up, start anew. And those some t- that sometimes is a conversation that folks will tell you, oh, we tried that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the last time we said something, we got shut down. And so for me, that's a time for me to be brave and say, yeah, I can understand that, but we got to try again. And I'm willing to go first because leaders go first. And so when I say temporarily with with psychological safety, no one can sustain always being the person who is risking their psychological safety. And I I often say this, my mama used to say this, y'all ain't going to kill me. (laughs) And so so when I say brave conversationalist, I am willing because of the profession that I've chose, because of the lived experiences that I have, to do my part. But I'm also brave in saying I'm not going to be the only one risking my psychological safety. That's it. You have a responsibility given the role you've chosen to do. You have a responsibility. So that's also the other side of being brave, not just modeling that, Mm -hmm. but also then (laughs) rallying the collective to say that you don't get to sort of be afforded the privileges of a leadership position, of a position of prominence, whatever that means but then skip out on these other responsibilities is not, I may carry that title, but it's not solely my responsibility. Mm. How much of your personal development or personal experiences as a child or family have influenced your philosophy around this work or influence the way that you engage being a brave conversationalist what is that? What are those early experiences look like um, that have framed really who you are now? I'm the oldest. Mm-hmm. So often known. Shout out to the yes, oldest child. Often known to uh, be the boss. I said, no, I'm not the boss. I'm just very inquisitive. And my curiosity has not been shut down. Mm. And so I think because which is probably rare um, <laughs> in, in the African-American community. Um, I was, I had a mom who, you know, um, not in public. Now, you ain't going to show out in public. But um, if I had questions about something I observed when we were in a public setting, it wasn't when I would ask her about it, it wasn't that's grown folks business. Mm. I'm not she would take the time to unpack as much as she could that occurrence, okay. that experience. Or I could say. 
I've always been an observer of people. Mm-hmm. I could say, like, Mama, did you see such and such and such and such? And not in a gossipy way, but she'll say, you know, we'll say, yeah, baby. And I'm like, I wonder why that was. And so sometimes she would tell me, like, I don't know. That's not our business. <laughs> um, but I just wanted that, that confirmation that I wasn't off mm-hmm. on what I was observing. And I yes. think that that feeds into my, like, people fir- first approach that I'm always going to want to know how you doing like I'm not going to start a meeting and not check in with folks like I'm just going to go to an agenda yeah. um, I think the just treating people like human beings mm. be, and partly because there were spaces where I didn't see that happen where I didn't see you know women mm. get the same respect and acknowledgement but I knew they were doing all the work sure. right? you know so um, that was hard to kind of see and I you know I was one of those kids who said when I grow up I'm not letting that happen, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, would feel I would feel bad sometimes when I didn't have the bravery to speak up or when I didn't feel like I knew the landscape enough to do it. OK, so that's another thing mm-hmm. that I've learned through the years. I have to be an observer. So sometimes I'm not not speaking up because I'm not brave. I just really know you're taking it in. There's more parts to this story. Yeah. And so I'm also a person who likes history mm-hmm. so sometimes i get so people nervous because I'm, I'm like well well tell me about the genesis of this you know and unpack this for me mm-hmm. and this and i'm not asking it in an interrogating fashion i'm asking so that i have an understanding for how we got here and and how we need to move forward mm-hmm. but all that was nurtured as a child mm-hmm. and i appreciate that i also had parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents who encouraged me to be a critical thinker and who didn't just give me all the answers. You know, I heard a lot. You can figure this out. But then they gave me the supports I needed in a safe space to figure it out. Yes. And so even on hard days where I feel like people aren't like moving, you know, in the same direction, I know that that's just temporary, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm going to find my tribe. And I know that I have influence that because I am a person who knows people and I build relationship with with people. I don't expect all people to be the same. Mm-hmm. I want to understand if that's the way you think about it. I'm not mad. Let's talk about like what happened. Why right. you why you think that way? You know, and is that an outdated way of thinking? Mm. You know, do you have any recent examples of, that can support that? Just to give hopes to being that that critical thinker. And maybe, you know, we need to consider another perspective because this is not the same situation. Absolutely. Well, when you talk about the early influences and how your mother really nurtured that gift of curiosity um, and even the approach around the brave conversations and being the one that is transparent in sharing your lived experience that is willing to take that risk, how much of that is necessary as part of this equity journey? <laughs> I probably can answer that, but I'm, I'm from your perspective, how much of that is critical to really saying this is the change that we want to see starts with us changing us in order for, um, us to number one start the conversations that move us to action that move us to you know real critical change but how much of that do you believe is is necessary in this work Uh, I would say 
almost like 90 percent if mm-hmm. I had to put a percentage on percent on it because this touchy feely stuff is what people call it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I call it soul work. Yes. People have compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. Nobody was coming to work thinking that they had to talk about their feelings and right. be introspective mm. and internalize stuff and reflect. Mm-hmm. I am talented. I came to do a task. This is all transactional. This is tactical. If I meet some friends along the way at work and have some work friends, that's great. Mm-hmm. But that's not what they hired me to do. That's not what we were paid to do. So in a sense, although we've been, you know, on this diversity, equity, and inclusion journey for a while in all workplaces, when you talk about digging in and really sort of internalizing the work in a way that that I um, look in the race forward model, where it talks about um, the individual, the institutional, and the cultural mm-hmm. aspects of how you move REI forward. Mm-hmm. Nobody was like, oh, <laughs> this individual part. Mm-hmm. So you you asking me to. It's the me work. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Everybody was cool with, oh, yeah, we know we got things in our our structures and policies that we have to change because, you know, they're outdated, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I don't know how many people, you know, people are like, I didn't, I didn't sign up to, <laughs> to you know, let my feelings show or to, to even tell you about any of my reflections. Mm-hmm. And for me, it goes back to the I being first before we get to the racial equity and inclusion. Until you do that introspective, you are part of the culture. Each one of us, when we That's come right. into our workplaces, contribute to the collective culture. So say, you know, you got an organization with 100 people. And 50 people sort of buy into it. 25 people are on the fence where they're kind of episodic. And then you got 25 people who are like, no. Mm. Those 25 people are still showing up, like doing zero work. So even if you got 50 going hard in the paint, 25, like they may show up here and there, you're going to still see the remnants and Mm. you're going to feel the vibe of those folks who are like, no, I did not come here for that. Yeah. And so that's why that soul work is important. Mm. That's why we practice self-care, because we know the emotional tax that goes along with this work. And it's also why I say everybody has to take their share of it, Mm. because we're not going to be able to sustain Mm -mm. if it's on the backs of a few committed folks. That's right. You know, at some point, other people have to sort of. You know, maybe we can pull some of those 25 who are episodic mm-hmm. into the fold of the 50. But some of them 25 going to go with the, the 25 who's saying no. That's right. You know, and so if we're collectively doing this work, then it doesn't that burden doesn't fall on on just a couple of folks. I love that you have lifted this as soul work. Uh, so let me just say I'm going to borrow still that because I love it. it. Go for it. <laughs> and it makes me. It, so when you talk about soul work, I can't help but to also think about this work, this engagement from a spiritual perspective. So much of who I am and rooted in the work that I do has everything to do with my faith, yeah. my faith in Jesus Christ. Yes. My faith in understanding that I've been purposed to do this work. I've been called to do this work. I've been destined on this planet to do and facilitate the kind of conversations of work that I'm doing. How much of your faith influences, contributes to, undergirds, 
lifts you in this soul work that you are talking about? Tammy, it is everything. Yeah. Everything, when I tell you, until you can get folks on board to buy and into temporarily risking their psychological Mm -hmm. safety for the good of collective, I have to have faith. I have to go with faith to understand that places I've been and places I'm going those are part of my assignment. And so I'm never going to be left alone. Mm. And so even on days where it's really hard to believe that yes made sense. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you talking about me? Even on those days, I know I'm reassured that I've given you the strength for the journey. Mm. Right. I know that because, you know, as long as I've been doing this work, one, I haven't really gotten tired yet. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's always a strategy, a method, a beloved community member who almost simultaneously at the time of y'all can have this (laughs) comes along (laughs) and reminds me of something or, you know, reminds, you know, say, you know, you didn't know you encouraged me when you said this or somebody will call me. Somebody always calling me about a book, a podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this at work and this and this. And I'm like. I'm a resource, but we're here to be used really on planet Earth. We're all here to be used. Right. And so even sometimes when I get in my little selfish ways about like, well, why are these? Well, what are you here for? Mm. We're here to be used. And what do you want to do with your time here on Earth? You know? Yeah. And so for me, faith is the foundation of it all. Mm. It is the humble confidence that I have. Because I know who has me, Yes, (laughs) you know, Um, and so it's at the root of it. And it it gets me through not just hard days. It gets me it helps me ground the joy Mm -hmm. of the work because I know it's not me. I know it's because of him. Mm -hmm. And I know that because he's with me, that is going it's his glory. That's good. You know? Yeah. So I, I don't I don't take any of the credit of it. And and when I need to rest. I know that I can. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm ever, you know, no is a complete sentence. Yes. That part. And I, <laughs> and I say and that I, one more time. No is a complete sentence. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. You know, there's no period. Like, so I don't have any further explanation for you. Mm-hmm. I don't have to, mm-hmm. you know, because I know that when I show up and when I'm in it, like I'm given everything. So when I tell you I need rest, mm-hmm. If I tell you I need rest, I'm, I don't really owe you that. I'm going to take my gonna rest take so that I can come back and I'm not um, harming the collective because I haven't t- taken care of my soul. Mm. Right. So my uh, church community is very important to me. Having time enough to give and serve in church is yes. important to me. I'm not going to get so busy with uh, my work that. I'm tired when it comes time to do things in ministry. Yes. Right. And also then really making intersections between what the Bible says about life Mm -hmm. and all this. Mm -hmm. And, and then seeing where, like, where, where does this make sense? You know? So it's at the center. It's at the center. Yeah. So if I can list the roles that I'm aware of, mom, grandmother, Leading Equity and Inclusion for the Foundation, Brave Conversationalist, Believer. One more, author yeah. Yeah. of a book. 
Yeah, that two. you have pup two. two. Okay, what? let me get it right. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. No, two time, two times published author. Yes. Author. So uh, the 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 second one is a a book that I co-authored author with my baby. Yes. Um, he's seven now. He was six at the time, and so it was our pandemic project mm. because you know none of us knew what to do. He was at home. I was at home. I'm like, you know what? I love you. But, you know, our work time, that was our our me time. Yes. And so now all of a sudden he got a workstation set up. <laughs> I'm across in another room with a workstation set up. But I'm like, we we not going to let this defeat us. Mm-hmm. We got to find some way. You know, we really can't go outside. And like, So what can we do? So we made a multi-language alphabet book. Mm. Um, and the book is in English, German, and Spanish. And so I'm his co-author. Oh, my. So he had had the uh, idea for what all the illustrations would be. And it's his book. So he's featured in most of the the illustrations. Yes. So, um, and they really do. They The artists did a good job. They look a lot like him. So that's my the second book that and we did. What's the name of the book and where can people find it's it? It's Ethan's um, Multi-Language Alphabet Book. Mm. We self-published it. So I just did like a little equid um website for it and so usually people are just you know they'll go to that site or people just talk to me directly and I'll mail them a copy so um, it really wasn't none of it was proceeds it was Mm. just like something productive has to come out of this you know and so he has that now forever as a memory of Mm -hmm. the year he couldn't really go to school (laughs) you know it wasn't as bad as as it could have been and and he was learning too Mm. you know so because he had at the start of the pandemic, he had only been in school six months, period, before the pandemic started. My goodness. And so um, my first book is called um, Leading Through Loss, Staying in the Game While Processing Pain. That book um, was really my reflections after my mama passed away. Yesterday was actually the four-year anniversary of her passing. Mm. And I'm still waiting for the sting to go away. Yeah. Right? And so for me, I'm not like a tantrum type person i i don't think that you have really permission or justification for showing out like Mm -hmm. i that's just not like i don't i'm not going to have an outward display Mm -hmm. and so i journal i had already been a journaler and so i really kind of like journaled my first six months post my mom passing knowing that it was a stopper for me but it didn't stop anything else for in the world i still had to show up as a mama I still had to show up as a leader. I still had to show up as a beloved community member. I still had to show up as contributor to my church. Mm -hmm. So none of that stopped. And so thus the title of the book, how do you continue to lead through your loss? Knowing that sometimes people will understand it and know about it. Some people will never know. And so, you know, you can be sitting here saying, I'm there knowing my mama just died. They don't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you should act accordingly. They don't know. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was just these series of episodes sort of that I kind of chronicled. And I ended it with just sort of like lessons learned from my first six months. And I think the last one was... Be good to yourself. Mm-hmm. I also have this section in there. My mama used to always tell me, you're not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Hmm. And so I talk. I have a whole section around <laughs> around that. That's got to be a good um, chapter. <laughs> I had a section in there about my very unexpected um, breakdown in Metro Mart on State Street. Hmm. 
never occurred to I hadn't been in there, but that was the grocery store I would go to for my mom. And so it was close to my job at the time. I'm going to pick up a few things for dinner. Tammy, I don't know what happened. Mm. I'm pushing my cart I'm going through, and I got in the, the uh, my mom loved Tilehouse crackers. So she would buy us Ritz crackers, but Tilehouse crackers were hers. Yes. I got in the cracker aisle. I mean, and I'm not a crier. And so all of a sudden, I was like, is my face wet? And so... <laughs> So I'm standing there with the cart mm. and I'm like, and now, you know, by the time you get to the cracker out, I done been through several hours. So my cart is pretty much full. I'm almost sure. at, I left that cart every, because I could not stop crying. Mm. And as the oldest, I feel like, you know, I went into um, planning mode. You mm. know, I got the call. I, my mom's next to kid. So at that point, it's like, you know, you got to you gotta plan the funeral. You got to take care of her. So. I, this was she died in August. This was about October, mm. and so I realized I had not processed all or said like I really hadn't cried. You know, you know, you do a few tears really because other folks cry. You know, like you comforting them more than you. But I realized that was I was having some sort of <laughs> breakdown, and I'm like, uh uh-uh, uh, we're not gonna do it in Metro Mart. And so I got to my car, and I was just grateful that I made it to my car. But I just sat there and mm. just had like. These flood of tears, and then I real like I'm like, what happened? And I realized that was her store. Like she was very specific about where you needed to shop for her groceries. Sure. And I had not been in that store since she passed, and so you know, so I go through different, really, to show that we don't get to control grief, yeah. and really that you know we grieve differently and we we mourn differently, and nobody gets to tell us what that looks like. Right. But you also have to be in tune and aware. With yourself so that you're giving yourself time for that That's and right. not just continuing to go, to go, to go, to go, even though you have other these other obligations to folks around you. Yeah. You know, so. As you are giving, you've been sharing even in your experience in writing this book and navigating the grieving and grieving mm-hmm. the loss yeah. of your mom you continue to pour, you pouring out to those, you know, in written form through your book, but also in your work. What gives you hope? Definitely faith in God. You know, we don't live as people without hope. Mm -hmm. Like that's what faith is all about. So I don't see myself being able to exist and function if I was hopeless. Mm -hmm. Right. So for me, I'm going to always find the good because there's good in everything even if horrible things happen if you survived it there's some things out of that that you can learn one the fact that you survived Mm -hmm. that's like let's celebrate that right um and so i I read something one time that you've survived 100 percent of the things you went through Mm -hmm. and i think about my life like you know i seem very upbeat and i am because what can i do about it Mm -hmm. i'm very good at what do i have control over (laughs) Like real control. Yes. And if I don't have any ability to change it, then give me the strength to go through it. Yes. And so that's the way I look at it because I'm like, well, it has to be help it happening for a reason. And sometimes the stuff you go through is not even for you. It's, it's for other people that you are going through it with. And so I think because I understand that I'm no different than anybody else. And that I always tell people, just like you have prayer, somebody else is praying too. So you may be the answer to somebody else's prayer when it seems like it's totally unrelated to Mm -hmm. you. And so those things give me hope. My faith gives me hope sort of past 
successes, give yes. me hope, sort of waking up every day knowing that, you know, it could have been another way. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as even, you know, things you inherit, you know, like around like diabetes runs in my family, arthritis runs in my family, high blood pressure. And, you know, I mean, I don't. I don't, those, that's not my testimony, you know? And so, so I'm grateful Mm -hmm. that those things are not so for me. Mm -hmm. And I still have the activities of my limb to be able to, that I'm in my right mind that, you know, I can understand that everything is not about me and everybody's not out to like sabotage what I'm doing and the good sense to know when people are, Yes, (laughs) you know, because I'm not naive, but to know then to have a strategy for how you deal with that as well. Mm -hmm. So all those things give me hope. Um, even when there are things that are disappointing, sure. my family gives me hope. The fact that I can see fruit mm. from things that were sown years ago gives me hope. When somebody comes back and says, you know, I'm doing this now. I had somebody reach out to me on LinkedIn that I was in a pre-college program with when I was in 10th grade. And to see where they are in life and remember, like, you were in that program with me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it's like sort of those, I call them like God winks mm-hmm. that just remind you that, you know, you're not in this alone. You're on the right path. There is good things happening. And even when bad things happen, I got you. Yes. Your work is not in vain. Yeah. I love it. Thank you for sharing your hope. Yeah. I want to give you this final question because the people got to know. What are you reading these days? Well, I am rereading. So I want to say not rereading. I listened to it first and I was so intrigued on it. And I feel like sometimes when I listen to stuff, I'm listening in the car while I'm doing something else. So then I picked it up and now I'm reading it. Mm. Andre Henry's The White Friends I Couldn't Keep. Mm. Okay. And what is on your playlist? I just made a road trip mix. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, it's some Frankie Beverly and May. Yes. It's some Earth, Wind and Fire. My it favorite. Is, um, Maverick City and <laughs> Kurt mm. Franklin. Just saw them in concert. Is, I did too. In Chicago. Yes. Oh my gosh. Tilly Field. Tilly Park. I was there. It was amazing amazing and so that was like one of the you know i went with my girlfriends and we we ate and we knew all the songs and you know like kurt franklin just puts on an amazing show indeed it didn't matter if it was raining well we weren't in the rain part but it was a little sticky that night it was it was humid (laughs) it was humid It was a lot of us in there. It was a lot of us. And Jonathan McReynolds. Oh, yes. Not to add to your playlist, but he is one of my favorites. And to have him there that night was special. It was perfect. It was perfect. (laughs) And he's in there. Um, um, Grace, his son Grace. And then I love his son Make Room. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, if I have to tie like something back to the journey of what I was saying is, I have to make sure I have capacity to make room for my foundation Mm. because I'm not going to miss, I'm not going to take him out the center. Yes. And so when I think about his song, Make Room, Mm -hmm. that's always sort of that reminder that uh -uh, things ain't got too chaotic. You know, if you got to scramble things around. Uh uh-uh, uh, something is out of sync. That's right. Um, and so I got Jill Scott, mm-hmm. Erica Badu, uh, John P. Key is one of my favorite gospel. Hezekiah Walker. So I just got a whole mix of, okay. I mean, a road trip mix to you know just kind of like I- anything that I know all the words to. Yes, I got That's, it on there. I haven't asked any guests this, but I'm gonna ask you. I didn't hear you lift Fred. 
Hammond, and I'm just wondering where does Fred fall on your playlist? I was listening to Jesus Be a Fence on the way over here. And I know all the solo parts. Yeah, and I was like, I'm gonna sing all the solo parts in the choir part. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> all right. I just I wanted to make sure that Fred was in. Oh, in yes. The mix. And Fred commissioned Fred. Yes. And Fred on his own as a solo artist. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Well, Kenyatta, this has been an incredible conversation. I've been wanting to have even this conversation with you about what you've been doing in this community, what you're doing in your current role with the foundation. I just want to appreciate you. Thank you for being a part of this conversation. Let's give it up for Kenyatta Sinclair. We just appreciate you. you. And for those of you who continue to tune in to On the Edge of Equity podcast, we invite you to stay tuned. We invite you to continue to be on this journey with us until next time. Thank you for joining us on the Edge of Equity. Please join our email list at info at athenacommunicationsllc.com so you don't miss a single episode. The link is also in the show notes. You can also support the show by sharing it on social media with your personal and professional networks, suggesting guests and topics for us to spotlight, and engaging in crucial conversations about systems change. 